Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with President of Cressy Performance, Eric Cressy. Thanks for tuning in to episode 153 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So absolutely delighted to get on Eric Cressy to the podcast. So Eric's been, I've been going back and forth a little bit with Eric to try to get him on. Um, very busy guy and especially with this uh, this latest weather hit in Florida where Eric has one of his facilities. That certainly put a, another small spanner in the works but we managed to get it done. Eric's a super busy guy um, so it's a short and sweet um podcast short to episode it's about 25 minutes long but i'm going to keep this intro nice and short because that 20 minutes um i know you're going to get so much out of there's so much gold in there from eric um on what you'd expect him to, to talk about really with ro- rotational athletes and um that kind of transition from the rotational athletes into maybe team sports um so we, we chat about loads of interesting stuff I think power is very plane specific, meaning that just because you can jump high or run fast doesn't necessarily mean that you're probably going to be really good rotationally. So throwing a baseball or you know a discus or something like that. So we discuss a lot in this episode from assessments to arm care to rotational power and finishing off with some chat around unilateral work. But just before we get into this episode with Eric, just want to say a massive thanks to Force Dex and Val Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you are looking for a force plate software and hardware solution, please check out Force Dex. Um, they seem to be getting absolutely everywhere at the minute. Um, make sure you check them out at forcedex.com. And also, as always, massive thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard and Groin Bar, for also sponsoring this episode today. So if you want to learn more about the Nordboard, uh, you can check them out on Twitter at uh, Vald Performance or on the web at valdperformance.com. So I hope you enjoy this chat with Eric and I will, uh, again, I'd love your feedback, but I'll chat to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So delighted after a few technical hitches to welcome Eric Cressy to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you very much for having me. Nice, good to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a little bit of a rundown on your your background, uh, what you're doing in the past and what you're currently doing? Yeah, for sure. Um, right now, uh, I'm president of co- and co-founder of Cressy Sports Performance. Uh, we have training facilities in Hudson, Massachusetts, which is about 40 minutes west of Boston, and also one in Jupiter, Florida. Um, so I split my year between those two locations. Um, you know, we are probably best known for our work with uh, baseball players. Um, so we see guys from all 30 major league organizations. We see college guys, high school guys, um, even the younger ranks as well. We also deal with a lot of adult clients and general fitness folks and folks from other sports as well. But baseball is kind of the niche. Um, in addition to kind of my in-person work with folks, um, I do a lot of writing, consulting, uh, presenting, things like that. Um, have a, a web presence at ericcressy.com and beyond. So um, I, I stay pretty busy. I'm also the, the, the dad of twin two-year-olds. Which is the most difficult, no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but pleasurable, of course. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, hurricane, all good? 
Yeah, we were, we were we lucked out. Yeah, the hurricane kind of went to the west side of the state, and we're on the east, so it took a detour on us. So we 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 got lucky. Um, you know, I, I, I hesitate to say lucky because it feels terrible because when it misses you, it gets somebody else. But yeah, exactly, exactly. Crumbled this time. So I put a little uh, tweet out, and a few people got back to me on with questions, and I just one one sure. that kind of fits quite nicely into what you just said is. Um, you become the you kind of become the kind of go to guy when it comes to baseball. How has that developed over time, and how have you become that that guy? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It actually kind of happened a little bit by accident. Um, so I think it's one of those maybe situations where you know uh, you know preparation or sorry, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Um, so I think in my world, uh, I actually uh, did my grad degree at the University of Connecticut um, from two thousand three to two thousand five. And really, um, to be honest, thought I would go in either basketball or soccer. Um, I really expected actually to be a, you know, a college training and conditioning coach. And it just so happened that when I left college, I went to the private sector for a little bit to see if that was something that might interest me. And some of the first guys I started working with were were baseball players, in spite of the fact that my background was much more in um, basketball and soccer. And um, it, it was a natural fit because, A, I was a big baseball fan, and my mom jokes that I, I taught myself how to read with baseball cards back in the day. Um, but I had a bunch of shoulder issues myself, so it was a, you know something I was very passionate about learning about. Um, it just so happened that some of those first guys that I worked with had some really good results. And you know, one of them won state player of the year. They won a state championship. Several of them went and played Division One baseball. And all of a sudden, our phones started ringing off the hook. And that's just kind of the, the direction we went. But we never really set out hoping to become this, you know, you know, kind of baseball specialist and really capture this niche. It's something that really happened over the course of time just by accident. Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you manage the general pop and obviously the, the pro athletes in, this, in the same facilities? How does that work logistically? Yeah, you know, it's funny. People always wonder, like, how can you possibly have, like, you know, people who are, like, you know, 65-year-old, you know, people who are just retiring who spent their life at computers, you know, alongside professional baseball players. And it's almost one of those things where you have to see it in order to appreciate it. Um, we have guys that are, like, general pop clients who give fist bumps to big leaders on the way to the facility. Like, they, they get along <laughs> great. The, the big thing is we're, we're using individualized programming in a group context. So, you know, they're not all doing the exact same programming. Um, you know, they're all doing something unique. They just happen to be doing it inside the same gym at the same time. So it's no different than if you go to a commercial gym and, you know, there's a cyclist training alongside a power lifter or something like that. They're not doing the same thing, but they're doing the same environment. And, you know, they can actually motivate each other quite a bit um, to put them in the right context. Mm-hmm. So one of the um, one of the questions that came through, which I'm going to kind of get into get into straight away, is the importance of uh, developing strength and stability outside the sagittal plane. Obviously, yeah. given the obviously given the um, what I've just talked about, that kind of fits perfectly. So, um, a little overview would be would be perfect. Then we can jump off from that. Yeah. So, actually, I'll tell kind of an interesting story about it that, that might intrigue you. Um, back in 2010, or the off season of 0910, um, I wrote an article for T Nation called "What I Learned in 2009." I think it was. And one of the things I talked about was just that I think power is very plane specific, meaning that just because you can jump high or run fast doesn't necessarily mean that you're probably going to be really good rotationally. So throwing a baseball or, you know, a discus or something like that. And, you know, really it was something that was born out of just observation. We had seen these guys who come in and throw 95 miles an hour who had 16-inch vertical jumps. And it just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I'm not saying, you know, guys should be more unathletic in, th- in order to throw hard, but you would think that there would be a larger carryover than, than that was the case. And so I, I just put it out there, hey, I think, I think that, you know, power is very plain specific. You know, it's – 
one of those things where, you know, you have to train in a rotational context. You have to get good at applying force and accepting force in both the transverse and frontal plane, not just the sagittal plane. So I wrote it up and it was very much theoretical, you know, based on anecdotal evidence. And I actually got an email right away um, within the next couple of days from a guy named Graham Lehman, um, who was actually doing his master's thesis. I think it was at the University of British Columbia. And he said, you know, it's funny you say that because this is what my thesis is on. And we're, we've collected all our data and we're seeing some like really interesting trends that line up with what you're talking about. I was like, all right, that's cool. Sure enough, it, it published uh, a couple, maybe a year later in the journal Strength and Conditioning Research. And they actually found that there was like zero correlation between vertical jump, um, you know, and pitching velocity. Even sprinting speed didn't, didn't uh, predict it nearly as well as you would have thought. Um, they actually found that the only things that really showed a strong relationship to throwing velocity was like a rotational med ball throw for distance and a, a lateral hop for distance. So, you know, basically a transverse plane measure and a frontal plane measure. So it was kind of proof in the pudding that if we want to get these guys better, you know, we need to, to make them monsters in those different planes. We need to get them, you know, doing lateral lunge. We need to throw the med ball. We need to do things like that. And, and the thing I would say from this is a lot of people would, you know, say basically get rid of squats, get rid of deadlifts, no more lunging, this, that, and the other. There's still a huge place for for working in the sagittal plane. We still do tons of work there because these guys still need to jump, sprint, do all these things. And certainly those are exercises you can load appreciably to really train the nervous system and put on muscle mass and build global strength. Um, but you know, they're they're not the only thing you would use. The other thing I would say is, you know, a lot of times when you're training in the sagittal plane, you're stabilizing in the frontal and transverse plane. So just because you're doing a lunge that is, you know, perceived as a sagittal plane exercise doesn't mean you're not actually getting a stimulus in those other planes. So we do loads of med ball stuff. Obviously we do our throwing programs and our hitting programs with our guys as well. But, um, you know, we, we definitely make a, a concerted effort to make sure that we're, we're loading them up and, and training power in those other planes as well. Does that also transfer to the stuff you're doing with the general pop? So concentrating on not just being sagittal with them guys as well? You know, put it this way. I think you, you always want to prepare folks for whatever life throws at them. You know, you want to, basically make sure that they're ready for the chaos that they may encounter. So, you know, are we going to do as much of it as we would do with our, our rotation support athletes? Absolutely not. But, you know, our our general pop athletes throw med balls, you know, they, they do lateral lunges, you know, whether it's in a warm up or in a loaded context during their actual training session. So, um, you know, I'd say the biggest difference is, you know, maybe the, the exercise complexity doesn't go quite as far. They aren't progressed quite as much. Um, and certainly like the loading and maybe the volume are lower, but you know, they, they still do it. Um, it's definitely part of the exercise selection we believe to be important for them. Mm -hmm. So going, going back to what you thought you were going to turn out to be and what yeah. you've actually become with the baseball guy, what would you say, um, you've learned from what you've done into what you thought you may do. And, and for example, if you were, were to work, if you were to work in soccer, mm -hmm. what kind of things would you plug into working with them guys or rugby or whatever you uh, kind of college setting yeah. that you've learned working with the guys that you do now? Yeah. You know, you know, one of the things I always, you know, as I talk about things like we, we have intern classes throughout the year, right? We have three separate ones. And, you know, the, the first thing interns always want to learn about is program design. And, and I, I get it. Writing programs is sexy. It's exciting. You know, it's like a chance to, you know, create something out of nothing. And what I always tell them is like, you'll get there, but you have to understand the why behind the programs first. So, you know, what I always talk about is you got to understand your anatomy, right? Anatomy is the, 
for me, the foundation of absolutely everything. And, you know, it lends itself to, you know, to physiology as well. And once you kind of have those pieces, then you start to say, all right, well, what is, what does good movement actually look like? Because everybody wants to say what bad movement is, but if you don't know what good movement is, you can't really diagnose bad movement. And once you understand what bad movement is, you, you can start to figure out what are the exercises that I'm going to utilize and how am I going to coach them to make this you know, change somebody's movement quality. And then you understand how to cohesively put them together in a program. The problem is everybody wants to write programs without those crucial underpinnings um, that, that are required to, to really create that good foundation of program design. So I always talk about, you know, if, if you really think about like sequencing of it, the anatomy and the physiology aren't inherently different between baseball players and soccer players, right? The, um, the quality of movement is not different, right? Aberrant movement isn't different. Really what's going to be different is how we actually program to address those issues and what those aberrant movements are. So a lack of scapular upward rotation is going to be a much bigger issue for a baseball player than it is for a soccer player, right? Um, so we just we appreciate those population-specific norms, but in reality, good movement is good movement, whether you're a soccer player, a hockey player, a basketball player, you know, a baseball player, whatever it may be. Um, we just have population-specific tendencies that we have to know to look out for. We need to know that you know, soccer players are going to be more prone to sports hernias. We need to really be on top of, you know, tissue quality and their adductors even more than we would for, say, a golfer or somebody like that. So it just keeps us on our toes and makes us, you know, think a lot about the, the people that are in front of us and how we're going to attack things. You know, I would never do an arm care program for a soccer player like I do for a baseball player. But you know what? They may need that much level of focus for hip health. So it got to kind of, you know, understand the populations in front of you, understand what good movement is, and then plan accordingly. Mm -hmm. So you obviously, you've obviously written quite a lot recently about um, and videos and things about arm care. And one thing that came through uh, on, on Twitter was a couple of questions from guys that are involved in tennis. Sure. Um, would, you, would you mind just talking us through how you define arm care and what that kind of looks like? Yeah, you know, it's funny. In the grand scheme of things, I think arm care is full body care because everything has to work together in order to, you know, if your understanding of like the kinetic chain concepts is like, you know, if things don't work further down, the arm is going to have to take a greater brunt of the load. Um, you know, but for me, arm care is a, a little bit of a broad term that speaks to everything from manual therapy and mobility exercises to actually, you know, strength exercises or, you know, even timing exercises. So a straight exercise might be, you know, cable external rotation, you know, there may be manual resistance exercises to build eccentric strength. And then a timing exercise would be like a 90-90 hold or rhythmic stabilization, something like that that teaches those muscles to fire at the right time. So um, it's definitely an all-encompassing term that maybe uh, attacks a lot of different things at once. Um, you know, and what you would do for someone who's really hypermobile, has a lot of laxity, is going to be different than what you would do for someone who's, you know, much, much tighter and needs more mobility training. As always, just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Eric. Uh, as I mentioned in the start of the episode, I'd love everyone's feedback on, on this episode and, and previous episodes as well. So if you want to drop me a message on Twitter or an, an email, I'd love to, uh, to hear your feedback. But just before we get into part two, I want to say a massive thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So I know there's been quite a bit of interest from uh, professional clubs in the UK about Fatigue Science and their ReadyBand sleep tracker. So if you are interested in uh, that type of solution, make sure you uh, take a look on the website, uh, fatiguescience.com and follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So over to part two with Eric 
uh, hope you enjoy and again I would love your feedback so that, that kind of leads me nicely into the next thing which was and again something that you've written about recently in movement assessments and again I'm guessing that although anatomy and physiology is, is pretty similar um, the assessments to actually look at these guys and how they move is going to be very different from a Absolutely. soccer player to a baseball player yeah you might so use, just what I yeah go on, sorry as I said you might use the exact same assessment for the two of them but find markedly different things and and what I would tell you though is that you probably uh, I always talk about like an assessment it's like a choose your own adventure book right you start somewhere and it leads you down different paths so you know if you put somebody on a table and you know they've got magnificent hip flexion internal rotation adductor length um, you know they, they check all the boxes you're probably not going to have to go and dig deeper and run like a a flexion, adduction, internal rotation test to see if their hips are symptomatic. You're probably not going to run a favor. You're not going to refer them out for an x-ray to see if they've got bony overgrowth in their hips. Conversely, though, if you see limited hip flexion, you see like a, a pinching feeling when they internally rotate, then you might start going down those rabbit holes a little bit more. So, um, you know, I, I always talk to people is, you know, start with your, you know, your, your, your things that you're going to do with absolutely everybody, but also have kind of like breakout things that you would go to look at, um, you know, as you start to uncover more and more things as you go through the assessment. So what are the things that you would do with, with the majority of athletes that you work with? Yeah, for sure. So I, I always speak to the idea that you have both general and specific assessments. So, you know, like a general assessments would be things like the functional movement screen, right? You look at overhead squat, like that's a global assessment that, you know, measures comprehensive movement over the course of several joints. So it can give you a ton of information, but that information is not super specific, right? You see an ugly overhead squat and you've really got to, you know, kind of separate out whether it was an ankle mobility issue, whether it was a, a you know, a motor control issue, whether someone's got a bony block in their hips, you don't really know exactly what it is. So, um, in terms of, you know, kind of how we attack assessments, um, everything starts in the office. You know, it's a, it's a conversation, it's a health history, um, it's going over their training history, their injury history, all this different stuff. So we can get as much information as possible about them. Um, you know, so basically, uh, once I'm, I'm done going through that and that may take, you know, half an hour, we, we may watch videos of a pitcher pitching and looking at his mechanics, um, we may go through MRI or x-rays, you know, their reports to, to see what the injury history looks like. Um, and from there, we'll usually do like a shirtless posture assessment, obviously the male. Um, we're looking at resting posture, um, you know, things that we look at a lot, obviously, in the baseball community, clavicular angle, scapular positioning, um, you know, forward head posture, stuff like that. Working from the top down, I'll look at cervical flexion and extension and rotation. Um, we will look at uh, scapular control through shoulder flexion, shoulder abduction. We'll do external rotation with the arms adducted. Um, we will do a toe touch. We will do a single leg balance. We'll do a, a push-up test um, in the office as well. Um, and then once we've seen some of those, usually what we'll do is we'll obviously put their shirt back on. Then we'll head on the floor where we have the tables. And so I really work with the floor of the facility. And you know, from there, we, we look at like traditional range of motion assessments of both the hips and the shoulder up on the table. Um, from there, we'll look at an overhead squat. Overhead lunge walk is something I use a little bit better than inline lunge, in my opinion. Um, get a little bit more like of a feel for their eccentric control. Um, uh, we'll do an active straight leg raise on the table as well. Um, do a lumbar locked rotation, which is a TPI screen that they use in the golf community. Um, so really just trying to get as much information as we possibly can, both generally and specifically, um, you know, to kind of go further and further down that rabbit hole and figure out what it is that those people need. Um, you know, assessments are also going to be 
a little bit impacted by, you know, what's your sport in question. You know, for a soccer player, you might do, you know, true fitness assessments. Um, I don't need to do necessarily much of that in the baseball community, um, aside from like a resting heart rate. But I might have a guy throw a bullpen off the mound where I can actually evaluate how he moves in the context of his delivery. So, you know, I think that's where, you know, you kind of get the different strokes for different folks and, you know, you figure it out as, you know, what, what does everybody need that's, that's different from somebody else. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the eccentric control in the – uh, overhead lunge walk what else does that assessment give you and why do you value it so much yeah it's great i mean obviously you're, you're assessing frontal plane stability anytime you go into single leg stance um, we do it in barefoot too so you can actually get a feel for what kind of foot they have you know do you have someone that pronates aggressively that never gets out of pronation you might see somebody who's a super high arch a supinator who's just not going to cushion well um so we're obviously looking at control of the femur we look at the like stride length are you, are you short stride is everything quads are they pulling into lumbar extension? Um, you know, can they get overhead with their arms? Is there full shoulder flexion range of motion? Is there adequate scapular posterior tilt? Is there adequate thoracic extension? Um, you know, do they fall into a forward head posture? So you can really see a lot of different things with something like that. But you know, above all else, I just I look at you know how do they handle their own body weight? Um, you know, not just the, the pattern, but is it just do they come crashing down, or is there a level of control? Um, you know, as they kind of go through it. And I think that's actually very, very telling, particularly with our baseball guys is, you know, it's a, it's a big red flag if someone looks bad on an overhead lunge walk to me because they, they need to be really, really strong to both produce and accept force in single leg stance to be successful in the baseball world. So just going back to one of the, one of the questions which I think fits in uh, reasonably well in that is just general do's and don'ts with overhead athletes, yeah. tennis throwers and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so put it this way, it's a little bit of a challenging one. Uh, you know, I think everybody loves to just like contraindicate overhead activity for them. Um, in reality, not all overhead work is created equal. Like a landmine press can be a great exercise and bottoms up waiters walk, you know, pull ups, TRX wise. These are all great things that you can do overhead to help, you know, individuals in these populations. Um, you know, we, we don't do a whole lot of bench pressing. Um, not necessarily because I think it's inherently dangerous for them. I just don't think there's a great return on investment. I think there are better things that we can do in those populations where we really want to do a lot of stuff that, you know, is going to get their scapula moving freely. And you don't really get that quite as much when you have somebody laying with their back on a bench. So, um, you know, we don't do a lot of classic, like just overhead pressing. Um, you know, instead we use a lot of cable presses, landmine presses, push up variations, Turkish get-ups, bottoms up carries, things along those lines for our kind of like quote unquote pressing stuff. Um, you know, on the, on the, like the horizontal pulling side of things, we, we do loads. A lot of our athletes do pull up chin up variations. Um, we tend to be a little bit more conservative with that. If someone's really, really lat dominant, maybe they sit in aggressive scapular depression or they, you know, they have very limited shoulder flexion. Then we tend to kind of try to tone down their lats in their programs. But, um, you know, there's, you know, we're not doing like incline biceps curls. We're not doing like upright rows. Um, we really don't Olympic lift our baseball guys. Um, you know, so it's, it's a lot of the, the kind of the usual suspects, I think. Nothing that would really surprise people, um, you know, that, that we contraindicate. So with the baseball guys, I suppose, and the, the other athletes that you work with, where, how, what part does unilateral work play in the in a general yeah. program? I would say every single one of our athletes does some kind of unilateral stuff every time they come in. And I don't just mean like, Bulgarian split squats and lunges, split, you know, stuff like that. Um, my feeling is they, they do it in their warm-ups every single day. 
Um, they do it when they throw a med ball, that single leg stance. Um, there's always balancing kind of incorporated in it. So, um, you know, we love to have them have some kind of exposure to it on an everyday basis. Um, you know, assuming, you know, no health challenges or anything like that, that would be concerning. So, um, you know, most of our guys, though, if, they, if they're lifting weights four days a week, usually there's, there's a, you know, single leg exercise on both days of their both lower body days of the week. And I know we're struggling for time, but another thing that you've you've brought up uh, quite quite a bit in your writings recently is fillers. Yeah, you just want to talk to us about how you how you use fillers and what what you mean by them, and some examples, if possible. Yeah, for sure. So you know, I think one of the the issues that we have, particularly with young athletes who who may have very good work capacity and be able to handle stuff, is they'll they'll race through things, right? So they'll do a set of med ball exercises. And then they'll they'll go right to the next set twenty seconds later, you know, or they do the same thing with plyos and sprinting and stuff like we'll see guys that'll do like a you know a thirty yard side start, they'll finish and they'll jog back. I'm like, no, 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 we're trying to change speed. You've gotta you've got to actually rest in, in order to have high quality work. So um, one of the things that we started doing when we really saw this with med ball stuff was all right, do your set, and then let's pair it up with something you need to work on. All right, you're a flat thoracic spine guy, we're gonna use a ball force belly lift. All right, you have you know, port rotary stability, we're going to do a bird dog. Um, you know, stuff like that just is, is a filler between, you know, sets of power exercises or strength work. So we use a lot to work in extra arm care stuff. So guys might deadlift and then do a set of, you know, prone trap raises between sets. Um, and those are just ways to get in more productive volume um, to, to, you know, effectively work on whatever movement and efficiencies folks have. Mixed training, you know, a little bit more dense, a little bit more, um, you know, fruitful, and we think it's been a really, really good addition for us. I, I joked in that article that you know, fillers is really just—it's just not a good term. Like it's, you know, it kind of lessens the importance of it. So I need—I yeah, need to come absolutely. up with a, a new name that better reflects how important they are. No, that's cool. Like I say, I know we're uh, we're pushed for time a little bit, but the last question that came in was: um, Are you doing much traveling outside of the U.S. in terms of speaking and and uh, and conferences and things? You know, I've, I've actually so- cut. I'd love to. Uh, I've done actually more uh, in the U.S. of late. I, uh, we had uh, twin daughters in November 2014, so that kind of put a crimp on my international travel. I think I've, I've been to Toronto twice since then. That's been the extent of my, my trips outside the country since our girls were born. So at some point or another, actually, we went to, I went to Japan with Team USA um, back in 2015 as well. But um, yeah, the, at some point I'll, I'll start uh, venturing internationally a little bit more, but, um, you know, right now it's a little bit tough to get away from home. So I tend to do a little bit more online content and, uh, you know, stuff that's a little bit closer to home that can be kind of day trips and things like that. But at some point I'll have to, to take the leap of faith and bring my wife along and we'll leave the girls for a few days and keep our fingers crossed that, you know, the place is still standing when we come back. <laughs> nice and where can people i know you've mentioned it uh at the start where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on writing wise social media wise yeah, for sure etc it's pretty easy it's uh, eric cressy e-r-i-c-c-r-e-s-s-e-y.com and then twitter and instagram and facebook are all just eric cressy so easy to find me perfect happy days and you can shoot off and get what you need to do done so happy appreciate days it. i really appreciate i really appreciate your time eric no sweat at and, all thanks uh, for having me nice no, pleasure mate speak to you soon sounds good thanks for tuning in to episode 153 of the pacey performance podcast massive thanks to eric for taking the time to chat uh, in his busy schedule i know he's a super busy guy 
But any feedback anyone's got on this episode or previous episodes, please feel free to drop me a message on Twitter um, or drop me a, an email to uh, paceyperformance at gmail.com. So thanks again for listening to this episode. Thanks again for your continued support uh, and more episodes uh, coming up next week in episode 154. So I'll chat soon.